am in tech online jba here and welcome to bonus episode 22 of diversity and mentorship in technology where we continue the conversation about diversity mentorship careers and business in technology with our guest each bonus episode is tied to a show episode so don't forget to check that out first if you haven't already done so now one more time let's reintroduce our guest ray ma and get into a deeper discussion regarding the topic of the week ai and machine learning so welcome back ray hi so what i want to do is kind of talk a little bit more in depth about your specific experiences specifically with some of the ai work you're doing i know the zeroth ai accelerator is something you're extremely involved in kind of what's that if you can give our listeners some details about that before we go into ai a little more yeah so i'm i'm one of the advisors for zeroth which is asia's first machine learning slash AI accelerator. And actually, even though it's based in Asia, it recruits globally. So I participate in some of the initial sort of company screenings, so interview the companies, and then also help them at the end with their pitches as, you know, one of the startup coaches. I wouldn't say I'm super involved, but I have known the founder talk for a while. Um, since before he started Accelerator, he used to be at Techstars. And uh, in, in London, and you know, I've seen the uh, accelerator grow from just an idea to now we're in our third cohort. So that's that's really exciting. And actually, one one other thing I'm doing is I'm also advising an AI chip startup called Rain Neuromorphics, and out of Florida, and uh, so have been doing that for the past, I guess, like a little less than a year since when they first got their initial angel funding and now we're working on our uh, seed funding. And that's, that's been really exciting because it's a industry that brings me a little bit back to my uh, college days when I studied electrical engineering, even though I wasn't a particularly great student, so I'm relearning some of these concepts as I try to uh, help brain strategize for their next step. Gotcha. And one of the things I know you're really involved in terms of wellness, and I talked to actually some people previously you know, there's different aspects of AI, but one of the topics I've just come across recently and previously was how AI is helping to, you know, fine tune research and clinical trials and providing, you know, maybe new measurement capabilities for doctors and people in the medical profession. How does that connect with you in terms of wellness and, and kind of the AI, the merging of the two disciplines, if you would? Yeah, so actually, um, I myself don't know too much about sort of AI combing through the doctor records, but one of the really interesting initiatives that people, a lot of people, I think, now are working on it because I've, I've personally played around with like three products already is the, uh, I guess, trend or mini trend at this point of people using AI to, uh, like chatbots that help with emotional well-being. So, you know, a, a couple have gotten funded, including one out of uh, Andrew Ng's lab. Andrew was, you know, a professor at Stanford and was the head of Google Brain and then later uh, Baidu Research. And he now has an AI lab on one of the products called Wobot, sort of a chat bot on Facebook that helps youth through sort of behavioral, cognitive behavioral uh, methodologies to become more emotionally, I guess, resilient and deal with negative feelings. There's a, there's a couple other startups that are also working on similar things. I've played around with Shin, which is a Swedish, I believe, startup and replica. Um, that was actually covered in Wired magazine a, a while ago. It was a long piece 
and came out of a girl's desire to preserve the memories of her best friend to create like a very lifelike chat spot that can help you at the same time, I think, record down sort of your life journey. All these products, I would say, are quite early, but that's, that's definitely something I'm personally looking at because in the process of studying psychology and mental well-being more formally for my degree, I think there's a lot of opportunity for tech to play a role in that. Hmm. Indeed. And, and I know also just want to get into the topic of the using labs. Can you go a little bit more into what that is for our listeners? And we talked about it in the regular show just briefly, but just maybe going a little bit more in depth in terms of what that is. Yeah, sure. So it's basically an incubator model right now. So I am working with, I, I'm basically trying to incubate a bunch of projects, um, mostly right now focusing on one, which is mindfulness at work. The idea is to get this lab started and running so that I can work work with sort of multiple entrepreneurs on different aspects related to well-being using technology. So launching technology startups that focus on human flourishing and some ideas people always ask me, what does that really mean? So I can tell you, so for example, working on mindfulness for work right now, another idea that I'm sort of passively, not super actively looking for team members is mindfulness for little kids. Using um, another one is I'm really big into coaching and have taken coaching classes, have a coach myself. I really see the impact a good coach can have. So earlier, as I was discussing sort of AI for, you know, therapy and well-being, I think AI could be really big in coaching and wellness coaching and leadership coaching, so things like that. Gotcha. No, it's all great funds. And the last one I, I wanted to do and look at was the Rookie Fund. I had interest in that. And I know you mentioned students before. Just a little bit of insight for our listeners about that. Sure. So Rookie Fund is a nonprofit that I launched in Asia with a colleague, with a next colleague a few years ago. We're in our third year. But I think for the listeners of this show, what's probably more interesting is the model that we basically copied, <laughs> which is Dorm Room Fund. We launched by First Round Capital five years ago. And Dorm Room Fund idea is you find a group of talented students, you sort of give them tools, slash training, but most importantly, you give them capital to go invest in other student entrepreneurs. That's what Dorm Room Fund has done. Um, they're launched by, like I said, First Round Capital, which was, you know, the investor behind Dropbox, Uber, et cetera, many unicorns, very well-known early-stage investment fund. And Dormant Fund is active in four cities, Philadelphia, Boston, San Francisco, and New York. And if you are in those areas, actually, I think they, they do coverage nationally, but if you are a university campus entrepreneur, right, so you could be undergrad or graduate student, then you're eligible for applying for their $20,000 investment, which has really, really founder-friendly terms. And they basically, you're now then a, a part of a portfolio invested in by these students, um, you know, venture investors. And I would say they do a pretty good job of helping you with your next stage. So I know that for their last cohort, they were the biggest, I guess they were the biggest group as represented in my Combinator's uh, you know, accelerator class. They had something like seven or eight companies that were dorm room funded in, in the last uh, summer batch. 
which I think is quite a feat. It's a very, you know, competitive program. So basically, Ricky's plan works very similar to that. We also train students and uh, to invest in other students, and we provide them with the capital to do so. We invest only in $10,000. I'm sorry, we invest only $10,000. Because of our geography, we're active in East Asia. But I would highly recommend any young entrepreneurs who are still, especially campus-based, to look into the Dortmund Fund um, funding program. I like them quite a bit. That is very interesting. Familiar with the model. And that brings me back to the maybe one of the final questions. Students investing in other students. And I look at it and I say, you know, is there less of a bias, more of a bias? Obviously, it's more of a peer investment, obviously, with the tools and the training to understand how, you know, to, to evaluate the investment opportunity. But what is your take in terms of not just return on capital, but just in general, the idea, do you find it's more rewarding financially for the capital fund, even though maybe less of a financial capital commitment? Or do you find that it's something that it's uh, still in the experimental phase or other funds like that, students investing in student funds have grown tremendously? Yeah, so I think, like, well, I can tell you about sort of my philosophy. It, because we're so early, it's really hard to say how we're going to do financially. And for the moment, Working Fund is for me an impact project, and I'm not necessarily looking for the most amazing returns. We're sort of measuring ourselves on various other aspects for which we're very clear to our investors, and um, we call them they're really donors at this point. So uh, it's different, but I think the long-term thinking I have around this is, especially in the U.S., and you're starting to see this in ecosystems that I'm familiar with, such as China. In the U.S., if you think about some of the most innovative companies, including Google, Facebook, you know, Snapchat, whatever, these came out, or even earlier, maybe some listeners will still recognize, you know, Dell, right? Mm. <laughs> they came out of, you know, campus. They came out of, uh, you know, the entrepreneurs that started them were still students when they started. Right. And I think there's a good reason for that, right? Especially now that I'm going back to school sort of part time. What I realized is that when you're on campus, when you're being a student, it's just a different sort of mindset you have, right? You are there to learn, you're there to challenge yourself and think differently. So it is sort of almost, I would say, um, inevitable to me that some of the biggest innovations have come from, you know, when people are students. And it's not necessarily because they're, not going to be innovative when you're at work, but, you know, having worked for the last 15 years, I think sometimes you just have a little bit more of an execution mentality when you're, you know, like get things done <laughs> mentality mm-hmm. versus, oh, let me just wonder about what I can do. Exactly. Right. So I, I definitely think there is this opportunity, right? Of course, it's possible that, you know, these, quote unquote daydreams, not too many of them materialize, but I do think when they do hit, it can be quite big because of the very disruptive nature of these daydreams. So I think from that perspective, a lot of investors, by the way, in the U.S., because I think of the success of YC and Dorm Room Fund, et cetera, these such programs, most of the big funds I know actually now have some sort of campus scouting program or straight-up campus investing program, where they do pay very close attention to student entrepreneurs. Now, the student investor piece comes in because as an investor, you're just so far removed from the campus community, right? And for many of us, I mean, I graduated 15 years ago, which doesn't seem that long, 
But when I go back to campus and talk to students and look at what they're studying in class and the things they're capable of producing, I mean, it blows my mind. So I would not necessarily be a great judge of their capabilities or of their, um, you know, like projects, then I would argue a student entrepreneur who's much closer to them in age and ability and context, right? So, and of course, when you do VD, when you're doing early investments, so much of it is how well do you know this person. As an investor, you have very little channels of getting to know this person. Maybe you can go after a professor, right? But I don't know about you, when I was in school, um, I knew which one of my classmates were the smartest or most hardworking or whatever. Because <laughs> right. Which of the people I was going to go ask for help when I got stuck on a homework set, right? So, of course, of course. Yeah, so I actually think it's a super brilliant and effective uh, way of doing DD and sourcing deals. That being said, my current experience with Ricky Fund, at least, is that actually a lot of student investors are much more picky than I would have expected, right? So sometimes when I look at a student entrepreneur, I'm like, oh, that's, that's, you know, that project seems okay. You know, what you're whatever, uh, 22, mm-hmm. I'm not expecting sort of too much. But then when you put them in front of our rookie fund investors, they're very much picky. They're like, oh, well, you know, I could also do that. Or I know people could do that. <laughs> right. yeah, that's not good enough. So, yeah. so I would say from an investment perspective, actually investors don't really need to worry, you know, Youth these days are very, very um, aware of what their peers can do. They're very picky. They care a lot about their legacy. So from a financial investment perspective, although I don't have any proof it's a great investment yet, at least I would not worry. I personally don't think student investors are any less diligent than professional angel investors, to be very honest. Yeah, that sounds that sounds just about right. And I, I say I, um, I have an intern group that I, they involved with for students uh, in technology and just just so I know what's going on because you know it's it's as the years progress am I am I still relevant and do I still know what's going on so it definitely is important and I think that's definitely the right nail on the head um, in terms of points so I definitely appreciate that with that I think you know we wanted to just thank you again Ray for coming on the show and in, in this bonus episode and you provided so much tremendous value to our listeners and uh, thanks again and and we'll definitely chat soon yeah thank you.